and the amounts that uh, Michael and the team's in in Tebby, Africa, checking up on things over there. Also looking into the potential of planting a school over there, which is very exciting. And uh, so my name's Don. For those of you who don't know me, consider yourself fortunate. But the... Uh, <laughs> No, I'm, I, when, I, when I get up here to be able to teach with the school, which I love to do, or the interns and things, uh, that's what I, what I come up here for. But if I can make it on a weekend, they ask me to stay and do, you know, the uh, Sunday morning services. So that's what we're doing. Now, one of the things that they asked me to do this week is to teach on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 5, they asked me, Steve asked me, would you start this morning just in the sermon? And uh, so I said, okay, that is what we will do. So Matthew chapter 5, it's a three-chapter sermon, 5, 6, and 7. But it says, And seeing the multitudes, uh, he, that being Jesus, went up unto a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... And here he goes through, first of all, what we will look at briefly this morning, what is known as the Beatitudes. He says to them, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then blessed are they who mourn, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and then blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are the merciful, and blessed are the peacemakers, and uh, so forth. And here, as he gets into what is called the Beatitudes. Now, first of all, maybe just as a little bit of an overview on the sermon itself, is that... Uh, here, when we're looking at, notice, usually if you've ever seen a movie, you know, or something on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is in it, he's there and he's preaching and there's, you know, maybe hundreds and thousands of people out there on a hillside and uh, where the Sermon on the Mount is, as it's called. Now, first of all, we're told here when it, it, that really doesn't appear to be accurate. On it, because it says, and seeing the multitudes, he went up unto a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. So this was something Jesus seeing the multitudes. There is he's down town somewhere, down in one of the little cities there, seeing them. He then goes from there up to a mountain, and when he sat, and his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. And so this is appears to be really more of a sermon to the disciples, looking at kind of the multitudes, looking at the masses. And so here we have a picture kind of, I think, of Jesus, probably almost that if you were just to go downtown, any town, any country, any time in history, and just kind of watch, seeing the multitudes of people. See, you know, the sun comes up, they're all heading out to whatever it is, the kids off to school, you know, dad out to plow the field or do whatever he's got to do, mom's trying to, you know, get the laundry, get the shopping, get whatever it is that she's doing, they're all milling around going through their struggles and their trials and their tests and their temptations uh, that all of life, every generation has had, trying to put a roof over their head, food on the table, turn another page on the calendar, keep the survival game kind of going, and just looking at, at their lives. No doubt just seeing, in a sense, they're just the, the activity of life going on, but without the vitality of it. Looking there at the emptiness, just watching people going from pillar to post day after day, just kind of the daily trudge of life and looking at them and realizing what they're missing. What they don't, what, what, what they haven't got. What he designed, what God longed for all of their lives that they're missing out and seeing the multitudes. They're going up unto a mountain, he said, and his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. And then he gives them there uh, this 
Sermon on the Mount, these five chapters, three chapters there and in it. It's uh, arguably the greatest sermon ever preached. That would be very safe to say. Uh, this is the most, because any of the, the greatest sermon would obviously come from Jesus himself. And uh, this is the most complete sermon of all the messages that Jesus gave uh, in, the, in the Bible. So this is quite arguably the greatest sermon that's ever preached. It's also the most complete sermon. I think in, in all of the Bible, for that matter of fact, virtually everything that you can think about, every, every issue of life is somehow or another discussed there. Now, if you need the rest of the Bible to interpret it and to study it and to explain it, but virtually everything in life is touched on there. Every relationship, our relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, with the world, with the devil, with prayer, with marriage and family and service, with giving, obedience, friends, enemies, treasures, anxieties, thought life, morals, ethics, judging others, faith, virtually everything in life. People have tried to find something that goes on in, in the human existence that isn't touched on here, and they can't really find anything in the broad strokes that isn't there one, one way or another. But here, as the sermon begins, it begins with what is known as the Beatitudes, where Jesus talks about the fundamental issue of all of life, the secret and the foundation of total identity, fulfillment of joy. And the word blessed, it means, it's a word there that essentially means intense joy. Oh, how happy. Real joy, deep joy, a lasting joy. Not a, you're not talking about a superficial joy here. He's talking about something way beyond that. And, uh, you know, and it, but it's, it's after, after he does the Beatitudes, then he goes through three chapters. But to understand, I think, the Sermon on the Mount, you really kind of have to go to the end of it. And in chapter 7 and verse 24, Jesus is therefore, and that's kind of, okay, I just gave you a sermon and here is conclusion. Here is a final message, his closing thoughts. He says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken unto him a man who built his house upon a rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat upon the house. And it did not fall, for it was founded upon the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them is like unto a fool who builds his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat upon the house, and great was the fall thereof. And, uh, and here, the Sermon on the Mount is really about two different people. And is, is really what it's all about. And Jesus gives the picture here of two men that went out and they built a house. And, uh, you know, one of them builds a house on a rock. The other one builds his house upon sand. Now, as far as we know, they both could have used all the same materials. They could have had the same, you know, concrete man, same roofer, plumber, you know, framer, electrician. They could have had all the same materials, same labors, and everything, same cost, same energy, same everything from the ground up. But the difference was the ground down and, uh, and, and from, from below it. And, uh, uh, you know, both could work on their marriage. Both of them could work on their children. Both of them could work on all of their friendships, on their behavior, on their ethics, on their morality, on all of the, the, the human aspects of life. 
And you could look at one man right next to the other man. And how can you say, well, how could you say this man is a better man than the other one? It's ridiculous. Who are you to judge? Who are you to look at one, one house and say, this house is a better house than the other one? And, uh, you know, in fact, I think this other guy over here, he even, I, I think he did an extra good job on some aspects when he built his house. But the difference is the Beatitudes. The difference there is something there that is below it. It's not the, the, the external. It's not the superficial. It's not the behavior. It's what somebody is, somebody is truly, is truly, is truly, one of them is built upon a rock. The other is built upon the sand. And these are the most critical verses of life. Of what it is all about. And uh, it's, it's what below it. When I was pastoring in San Jose, there was a man in the church that his father, a very wealthy man, he uh, bought some land in Monterey Bay, if you know where that is in Southern California, one of the most beautiful parts of, of California coastland. And he bought a piece of property there on a hillside and, you know, hired, you know, all the contractors and everybody, architects and everybody to come in and do the thing. Well, in the process of, of getting permits and things to build his house, the, uh, the building department, you know, wanted him to go and do a soils test. And uh, so they go do the soils test and the soils test come, came to find he had 12 feet of sand he had to take out to get down to bedrock. And that had he been allowed to build on the, you know, just to kind of level it all off and, you know, pour a foundation and build it, is he would have had 12 feet of sand below this house. It cost him over $50,000 just to get the sand out to get down to rock to then build his foundation on. Well, obviously he was glad to do it. I think it was probably a multi-million dollar home. But uh, he wasn't glad to spend the $50,000. But he realized the millions of dollars he would have maybe built on top of it would be absolutely futile. Well, that's the the way that Jesus essentially looks at our life. And the Beatitudes, essentially, this true happiness, this true joy, what they are all about. When people look at it, say, what is it? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they who hungry. What is this kind of all about? Well, the Beatitudes, essentially you might say, are the excavation that's got to be done before you can build up. The Sermon on the Mount is how you go build the house, build the life, build the relationships, build all of those. But the, the, the Beatitudes are digging down, in a sense, to, to bedrock. Essentially, it's, it's because what is really happening, very simply put, in the Beatitudes, is there's an entire transference of authority, of power, that is happening within the Christian. That has to happen at the very root of his identity, of his heart. He has, a throne has changed from one person to another. The right to rule, the right to lead, the right to fill, the right to guide. The, the one who, you know, who, ha, who should be leading and guiding and filling and empowering and blessing is being enthroned. And the other one essentially is being dethroned. The one who was running it, that ran it into the ground before he came along. Before he, you know, said, here's how we're going to build it. He says, first of all, we've got to decide who's going to build it. How it's going to be built. And here, so the, the Beatitudes are known kind of, in his, you could look at them as kind of, an, of a dethroning and an enthroning of the right one. The dethroning of self, the enthroning of Christ. And this is the key to happiness. This is the key as far as when he says, oh, how happy 
There he's looking there that the key is there's a lot of things we're going to teach or we're going to, that I'm going to put in there in terms of, you know, your home and your marriage and your family and your relationships and your thought and your behavior and all of how you work together with the rest of the world around you and how you function with it and get along. But the most thrilling part of it isn't anything that's going to be happening in any of those relationships. But it's what's happening in the primary relationship and identity of who you are and who you were created to be in the first place. And the most wonderful, happiest part of life is when the right king gets on the throne. Is when the one who who you realize he has to be there. You know, it's interesting right now what's going on in our country. And I don't want to get into politics on this thing at all. But it certainly is something that you should Because there's there's a lot of people... That are very happy, you know, about somebody that might be on the throne. There's a lot of people that are very unhappy, you know, and but uh, and that's just somebody that's in political power, you know, and things. But the most wonderful thing that ever happens to a human being is when the one that really ought to be ruling, not the country or the city or the state or the city council, but of their own heart, of their own life. When the right king has, is there, that is immense joy, supreme joy, and exalted joy is essentially what it means. When Jesus is saying, oh, how happy, and over and over again, oh, how happy is this person, and this person, and this person, how happy they are. The world has a joy that it basically, because it doesn't know a transference of power, it doesn't know, you know, getting the Lord enthroned within their life, and that isn't particularly of a thought to them at all. It's kind of left not to a rudimentary or a deep or a getting to rock bottom identity of themselves joy. So basically, the joy is, is all above ground. The joy is just the design, you know, of the house. You know, you know the, 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 the marble, you know, kitchen tops or flooring or the chandeliers or the plush carpet or the other things that they maybe put in. It's the superficial things above ground that they kind of, you know, have, happy. You know, a lot of people, they're just happy. A good joke, <laughs> a new toy, you know, winning the lottery, a new job, a new house, you know. A new husband, <laughs> new wife, new children, new parents, you know, whatever else. They're kind of, I need a new something, you know, in life all the time. And, uh, and here is, but, but real joy doesn't come from anything at that level. It's not based upon a human condition whatsoever. To have true joy, it doesn't require any change above ground at all. It is something there, it's, but, it's, when, but when something has happened below, below the ground. True joy has nothing to do with your health, your finances, your job, your house, your car, your husband, your wife, your kids. It's something, this, true joy is something you cannot take away from a human being once they've found it. It is a joy that throughout history has been found in the, in the hearts of the martyrs uh, as they've been thrown to lions. You find it in the spirit of the terminally ill, terminally ill that have days to live. You find it in the hearts of those who are being persecuted for their faith in China. It is something deeper than the food you eat or the clothes you wear or the jewelry you have. It is something that happens within the human soul. And until it finds it there, it will always be searching. It will always be seeking and looking and finding. 
But when happiness is something that is found at the level of the soul, at the before God, and they realize they're in this transference of power, and the things that happen within the Beatitudes, they realize, number one, the full-on, incredible love of God. They come to realize there that something has happened when, when they allow the Lord Jesus to claim their soul. And they realize this belongs to you. Whatever else is going on in my life. My soul was made by you, for you, to be with you. And there is something incredibly joyful about yielding one's soul over to God. Surrendering it. And agreeing there with God's plan of redemption for them. And, and this is essentially what the Beatitudes are all about. They lay it out so wonderfully, so powerfully. It's a joy that basically is literally out of this world. It has nothing to do with this world. It has to do with God's world, an eternal world. It is something there that they find there only in Christ. And primarily, first of all, rooted in him and then it comes out of him. The world has the capacity to, to toy with the soul. Promises, the old carrot hangs it out there. How many, time, how many times has there been something? In all of our life, we run after the carrot. You know, there's, you know we're, we're a little kid, I need the bike, I need the bike. You know, or whatever we need. And then, I'll never forget my, my first, there's a bike I wanted so bad for Christmas. My parents got me the bike. You never saw a happier kid, I actually got the bike. I can remember that Christmas. I actually there went and, and after we kind of opened up our presents, I could hardly wait to go out and ride. And I get, I, I, I took a, a, a dime. I took my family out in the driveway. I'd heard the phrase "stop on a dime." I literally took a dime. I put it down, you know. And my family's wondering what's going on. I put the dime, you know, down in the driveway, and they're watching what's going on. I said, "I'll be right back." I go out, and uh, this was actually I, this was my first. Bike with brakes and gears. I'd had littler things before, but this is the first one that had, you know, like a three-speed bike, handbrakes. <laughs> well, I, I go down the street. They wonder where did he go. I go. I get in first gear. Go to second gear. I'm going as fast as I. I come flying around the car, flying down the driveway, and there I'm waiting there. I, I get right where the dime is. I hit those brakes and skid. I was only like five feet from the garage. I skidded right into the garage. <laughs> Busted up my, my bike all over, cut myself up. The front wheel was completely twisted around. And there went my Christmas joy right down there. And my family is looking there and said, we have an idiot for a child. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but that never ends, does it? All the way through life, something there that is out there that, that, that constantly... You know, that, that there's coming out and surround there that if we could only get it, how happy we'll be and what it will be to us. Well, here, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, which we're going to get to here. I mean, it's, it's something there. You got to understand something about the Beatitudes because basically this is happiness broken down into bite-sized bits. None of these by themselves constitute or produce happiness. But collectively, put together, it's, it, it's happiness. It's like an automobile. If you say, somebody says, what's an automobile? I, you know, I have an automobile. What's that? Well, it has a frame. It has wheels, tires, an axle, engine, you know, uh, transmission, body, interior. You know, we would kind of give all different things there that when all assembled together, they make an automobile. By themselves, they won't get you any place, but assembled together.
And this is what Jesus is doing. He's taking happiness and he's breaking it down into how it happens, what it is all about, what constitutes. When you see a person there that has immense, beautiful and eternal joy, what happened there? How did this transference of power happen? How did one get dethroned and the other get enthroned? How does this thing we call lordship happen? Well, the first one, and this is as far as we're going to get this morning, but it's a complete thing, thought in itself. He says, Jesus said, oh, how happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the poor in spirit, essentially, what it, just, what it means is, it means an emptying. Yeah, there it means there, yeah, it, but like you, it's supposed it to be, it's a poverty-stricken human spirit. It's there when somebody there, they look and, they, and, and there's a brokenness of heart. In a sense, there's a complete loss of self-worth that has happened. Now, we live in a world that says confidence and assurance. Be all that you can be. You're the master of your own destiny. You're the captain of your own ship. You know, uh, the Marines, we just have a few good men, in a sense. But here, Jesus, rather than all the thing of there, this self-assurance, of this self-worth, of this value, and all of this, Jesus says, no, it's actually just the opposite. The person there that is truly, deeply, immensely joy is somebody there that, it, that, they, that at the very core of their being, they're absolutely, spiritually poverty-stricken. It is something there that, that within them, they're absolutely robbed of their spirit. You know, it's interesting. We, one of the things, religion, essentially, the word religion, English comes from Latin, as you may know. The Latin word for religion is the word relingare. And the word relingare simply means to relink in, in Latin. And, it, uh, and all, all religion, by definition, uh, admits there's a missing link between God and man. And, uh, but they just, but they, essentially all religion, all of them, it's just how has the link happened? Well, every religion in the world, essentially, man is doing the relinking. You try, you do this, something that is relied upon you, upon your energy, your effort, something within you. What makes Christianity, when people come and say, you Christian, who, how arrogant, who do you think you are to say you're the only religion in the world? It's the most preposterous, arrogant thing you say. Well, first of all, it's not Jesus said it. I didn't say it. I made that up. He said it. No man comes to the Father but by me. But the thing is, is what what makes Christianity different is that Christianity is the only religion in the world where God does all the relinking. God essentially looks at man and says, you're too bad to be true. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, and dead men can't help themselves out. They can't heal themselves, transform themselves, forgive themselves, you know, resurrect themselves. I do the resurrecting. I do the saving. I do the forgiving. I do it all. You merely receive it. But you don't do it. Our next door neighbors are two of the most wonderful people, I think, safely we've ever known. Truly wonderful people. And uh, they're Hindus. We've had dinner with them. We enjoy them. We went out and they wanted, he wanted to tell, explain, you know, Christianity to me. And we're talking about, you know, he's Hindu and, and he's talking about, and I said, now you explain to me. How does it work for you? 
And he says, well, karma, kind of, you know, I mean, you kind of, karma, you, you get what's coming, and so by and doing good and doing it, you, you move up through the lives. And I said, so how many lives does it kind of take? Do you have any idea on this? Do you have any idea when? when it, <laughs> he says, no, we really don't. He's very open. I said, we really don't. Uh, could it be thousands? He says, oh, yes. Thousands. I said, man, that's a lot of times to have to go through and get your karma working for you. You know, Christianity, you just simply say, I'll never do it. Jesus, will you please forgive me? You know, and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, I mean, it's, it's totally different because Jesus is the one who does it. But here, it, but at the core of it, it requires there a person that looks and realizes there that, that I was once. Are you trying to tell me that I was once created in the image of God? I was, God once indwelled me. God and Adam walked together in the cool of the garden in fellowship. Man was created that his identity, his love, his joy, his peace, his power was only equated with God's himself. God's love, God's joy, God's identity, God's fullness, God's wealth of his being radiated in man. Man didn't do any of it. He just, God lived in him. He was a reflection of God. He was in the image of God. And, 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 and all it required was the presence of God. And when he lived in the presence of God, just like a mirror, 2 Corinthians 3.18 in the Bible, it says, All we with an unveiled face continuing to behold, we reflect like mirrors of the glory of the Lord and are changed from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul says the secret of Christianity is looking at Christ. And then we reflect his life like a mirror. It, does, it doesn't require any energy. It just requires presence. Every one of you got up this morning and it looked like some of you looked in a mirror. Some of you should have. No, I'm just kidding. But the, uh, no. but, but the thing is, oh, oh, that's terrible. Oh, but anyway, <laughs> sorry, if the shoe fits. No, I'm okay. But <laughs> we're going to get distracted here. The point of it is, it didn't require any energy from the mirror. When you walked in, the mirror didn't say, oh, get out of my print. No, it just, okay, that, that's what we got. It just, what, what, what's looking at it gets reflected. In man, God lived in man. He filled man. His man was had this incredible life of God flooding in him through requiring no effort, no energy. Simply there, it required his presence. And when the most important thing is that a man at the core of his being says, if that's true, I've been robbed. I have been robbed. They look there and realize that is not me. That is not me. Something has stripped me of that, has taken it away. His love, his life, his power, his magnificence, has stolen it from me. It's all gone. It's, uh, and, and here at the core of it, that there is that, that's, that's the key, that's the entry level. There's somebody there, he doesn't leave us there, because that can be very depressing by itself. If, if there, that could be the ultimate of depression. I suppose is there, is there, is there, is there of needed to be. You know, and, uh, you know, I, I saw a lot, what I think, I saw something there that said this, the lottery is up to over a billion dollars or now. You know, something. I mean, you'd imagine having a lottery to you, you got it. 
You look at you look at look, and you go to your friend, and your friend looks at that, and you look at this. I won the lottery. Your friend thinks you're joking. They grab the thing and tear it up. It's don't fun with me. No, no, that would be depressing. You know the I suppose. Well, far more than that. You know, rather than watching a billion dollar joke, you know, go down the drain, is that somebody realized I was created in His image. In his image. To reflect him. What happened? What happened? We'll get into that in the school. If you want to come back, maybe they'll let you pick up on it. But primarily, the first thing is there is to realize that the fundamental issue here in being poor in spirit is that somebody looks there and they're aware of that. There is something that is happening there where they realize that there's going to be a process of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and atonement there that that, that has all been done. It's all there, but it's only valuable to the person that deeply wants it, that looks there and realizes it's the most missing aspect of life. Until I have it. Nothing will do it. No house, no car, no job, no relationship, no achievement. Nothing will do it because I wasn't created in that image. I was created in his image. And, uh, and, and how to get back to that. Yes, but that's the great thing. John the Baptist, when they came to him, whom Jesus said the greatest prophet ever born of a woman. There Jesus, you know, John the Baptist, when he looked at Jesus, he must increase. Literally, a progressive, uh, present progressive, he, he said, he must go on increasing. I must go on decreasing. In other words, John the Baptist says the secret of life is more and more of him and less and less of me. And, you know, when, when Jesus sat with the disciples and he told them, he says, you know, another will deny me, another will betray me, you'll all scatter like sheep. But each one of them, they looked at him after being with him and said, Lord, is it high? All of them thought, even after three and a half years with him and seeing his life and knowing their life only too well, they all realized they're the tremendous capacity of human failure and what it was all about. Moses there at the burning bush, God had to reduce him to nothing. And then God poured everything into him. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 5, over and over, woe unto they, six times he said in Isaiah, woe unto they that join house and us, woe unto they that party all night and go to bed drunk, woe unto they that, and he just goes on and on and on, telling everybody how bad they are in in chapter 6 of Isaiah. He says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw his glory. He says, there with him there were these cherubims, or seraphims, He said they had six wings, with twain they covered their face, with twain they covered their feet, and with twain they did fly. And they cried, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And he says, and I looked and I said, woe unto me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We're all a mess. And then he says, Lord, hear my send me. As the Lord touched him, transformed his life. You know, the prodigal son, the great seeker, the prodigal son in the story of the prodigal in the New Testament that Jesus gives in Luke 15, that he goes off and you know the story, spends everything in just futility trying to be happy. 
And then one day he comes to himself and he says, you know, I'm no longer worthy to be called my father's son. I've blown it. I've lost it all, but he says, maybe you'll take me back as a hired hand. My father's servants do better than, than this. But it says that when his father saw him coming home at a great distance, his father ran to him, fell on his neck, hugged him, and kissed him. In the meantime, the son is there. He says, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Would you take me? The father doesn't hear a word. He said, all I know is my son was dead and he's now alive. He says, you go kill the fatted calf. Put the ring on his finger. Put the robe on his back. Put the new shoes on his feet. His full inheritance is back. I finally got my son. But he had to come to the end of himself. And that's the thing. The, great, the, the, when the coming to the end of ourself is the secret of all life. Alan Redpath used to always say, God always reduces a man to a minimum. And then he pours in the maximum, but never before. God has to bring us there. That We don't really rejoice in redemption until we, we know how deep it is. Our, our joy of being a child of God is usually directly related to the depth that we realize his love is gone. When we can look there and realize, you know, that God owes me nothing but judgment. That I rebelled, I ran, I ran my own life. You know, there's a lot of people who say, I'm not, I, maybe, you know, the guy that built his house really well, he said, I'm not a thief. I'm not an adulterer, I never stole anything. God looks and says, you're not a thief. You stole the most precious thing you ever have. Yourself. You're a thief. I've never committed adultery. The book of Hosea, Hosea, God calls Hosea, he says, I want you to take a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land hath committed great harlotry, departing from the Lord. God looked there and he says, Hosea, these people that think they're so good, and they're so righteous, would never commit adultery. Every one of them that ran away from me and love another, They've committed adultery against me. I love them. And they've run, they've stolen their life. They murdered themselves. They, they, they enthroned their own life. The height of arrogance, I'll run my life. I'll make my decisions. And here, their God has been entirely rejected. And now they're trying to run it. And of course, they have no love, no joy, no peace, no wisdom, no power. Nothing capable of really running a life sufficiently. But yet at the same time we go on until finally something happens internally. We realize, I am a thief. I am an adulterer. I am a murderer. I did it all. And that's what Paul says in the New Testament. If you have broken one of the least of the commandments, you broke them all. And uh, in the, But on the other hand, at the core, God looks there and when the soul comes home. When the something is happening, when it hits bedrock, and it's, it's like I think the, the guys that go out and clean off, you know, that dig out 12 feet of sand. And they've been going down and going down and backhoeing it out and, you know, hauling it off. And then finally they're going down and boom, they hit something solid. And they look at each other and say, now, now we can build. And to me, when somebody looks, and, and, and that's what 
the first beatitude is all about. It's hitting rock bottom. It's looking there and saying, God, you always knew this about me. Oh, yes. You knew I stole my life. Oh, yes. (laughs) You knew I'm guilty of all this. You know I've tried to run it without you. Yes. Every bit of it. But I love you. I love you with a love that the world doesn't understand. The Bible says God is love. He just is it. He's not just simply good at it. He's not well trained at it. It's what he is, cover to core, stem to stern, you know. I mean, all the way through and through. You know, you and I, we, we love, you know, behaviorally, we work at it, you know, but it's it's very superficial humanly. It always is a point where that's enough. That you push me too far. You dug too deep. You know, with me, you know, sort of a thing. We're always trying to work on love, you know. You know, I love you. I'm, I'm trying to love you. I'm working on love. You're pressing my love. You know, I mean, we've got all of these. God, no. He isn't. All the way through. And when we look there and we can finally realize when we, when we get rock bottom where, we, where what he has always said about us has always been true. There is none that doeth good no, not one. All have sinned and, fall, and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. And when somebody realizes that, and they realize that God loves us so deeply, he's taken our sins, the Bible says, he's removed them as far as the east is from the west. You know, that's an incredible thing. You know, we, It's a good thing he didn't say from the north to south, because you can only go so far north, and that's it. You can only go so far south. But you start going east, you can go east forever. You're west forever. You know, but he's removed that as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says, you know, he's buried them in the depths of the sea. That's, a, you know, it's an incredible thing. There's a lot of the scientists that tell us that we won't know more about the universe uh, long before we know the depths of our own sea. The capacity there of what is down at the, deepest, <laughs> the depths of our sea. We know more about Mars. You know, we know more about Venus. We know more about the moon. We know more about all these than we do the depths of our own sea. And yet the Bible says that, that he buries them in the depths of the sea. There may be some say, boy, Lord, if you could take all my sins and, you know, stick them on Mars. Well, they'd be on the Internet by now. You know, type of thing. There, there would be there's some camera going around a little machine. Whoa, you know. But he buries it in the depths. He hides them behind his back. And then he says, behold, I remember them no more. You know, we can forgive one another. But we still remember. God looks, he says, no. When I forgive, they're gone. And why are they gone? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he forgives us, when he died on the cross for us, he took them upon himself. He transferred my sin over to him. All of them came over on him. That's why Jesus, the Bible says that when he was stood before, he stood, he uttered not a word, but as a lamb dumb before the slaughter, before his accusers, they came, Jesus, defend yourself. There was no defense. He wasn't there on his behalf. He was there on mine and on yours. So he uttered not a word. No, I'm not here on mine. There is no defense. They're guilty. Kill me and they'll be gone forever. And so he can forgive them because they are blotted out. 
They're blotted out. They're literally gone, never remembered again. My pride, my arrogance, my you know stubbornness and, and nastiness or anger or rebellion, you know, all of that. He looks at and it's gone. And you know, it's something there to deal with constantly in life. There that you know, you know because you know we have this amazing way of through life that the person there who who finds themselves aware of that, and then they come and say, Jesus, will you save me? Will you enthrone yourself in me? You know, like somebody once said, we found the enemy, <laughs> and the enemy is us. That a Christian is somebody who looks around and he says, I found the worst enemy of my life. There may be some of you today that I say, who are your enemies? Maybe some of you, well, you boy. You know, they're, they're, yeah, maybe you were married before, and that boy was that a miserable, pathetic thing, you know, or you, somebody you worked for, worked with, worked around. Maybe somebody there stole your 401k program. Maybe you know, you know, ripped you off. Did all sorts of things. Let me tell you, nobody in all of your life has ruined your life more than you. Nobody. That same pride, that same arrogance, that same person, that same nastiness that follows us everywhere until something happens. Poverty of spirit. And we look there and say, Jesus, save me from me and then tomorrow morning when you get up and you look in the mirror and look there and say Jesus I think I'm back (laughs) and he says and I am too and as the joy there of Jesus enthrone yourself in me take over your life your power your love your goodness and that's at the core of it. Then, as, then we go on this. Then blessed are they who mourn and blessed are the meek. When there's somebody there, just a, we'll just close with this. But when somebody there, they, there's, these are constant. They never end. It isn't like, oh, been there, done that. No. It's constantly realizing in life. Constant, you know, they're an awareness. Lord, without you, I'm, I'm done. But then there's a sorrow. That's what blessed are they who mourn. There's a a godly sorrow in that. There that realize, I don't like this. I don't. It's not good. But when we today, as far as we'll go with it, and say, Lord, oh, how happy. Oh, how Jesus said, immensely happy. And when we start building the car, he says, the frame, the foundational thing you built upon is somebody there that the greatest fear that they have in life is to be left with themselves. And they realize, Lord, save me from me. Without you, I'm utterly robbed of my identity. Amen.